Today we're going to be closing out a series that we've been in uh, for the, this past month, the month of January, and the series we've called Know Him. And the goal for this entire series has been to encourage all of us to not just consider the things that we know about God uh, and to not just think about our faith sort of abstractly uh, and to take comfort in the knowledge that we have about God. Uh, and we can take comfort in the knowledge that we have about him. But really the goal has been for us to experience all the things that we've been hearing from Jeremy uh, and then from David last week, uh, to take those things and for us to use those to know God more, uh, to experience him personally more deeply, uh, rather than just sort of, like I said, thinking about him kind of abstractly. And so as we wrap up the series today, that is my prayer for all of us, uh, for myself included, uh, is that we would think about God as more than just knowing a set of facts, that we would think about him someone personally uh, that we can know. And specifically today, uh, that we would look out at the world around us uh, and see creation itself uh, that God has created and see how God is really in control and at work in all things at all times, and that that aspect, that knowledge would drive us to want to know him more deeply. And up to now, we've talked about knowing God in the Bible, uh, knowing God in prayer, uh, even knowing God in suffering. And then David last week talked about knowing God uh, through the body, through fellowship of those around us. And today, we're going to take a wider look at knowing God uh, in the world. And specifically, we're going to talk about three things today. We're going to talk about God's creation. We're going to talk about sin's effects on the creation, uh, on the world around us. And then ultimately, we're going to talk about where all of creation is headed. So keeping those things in mind, uh, let's pray real quick and ask God to be with us, and then we'll open up the word. Heavenly Father, we come here today, Lord, to hear from you, myself included, Father. Please be with us, be with me as I speak, Lord. Um, have me say, please have me say what you want me to say, Father, uh, not what I want to say. Uh, and be with all of us, open our hearts and our ears, Lord, to hear your message, Father. We're so thankful that this is even a part of our life, Lord, that we can, we can talk about you and we can hear from you, Father, and we can expect, genuinely expect to hear from you, Lord. Um, and we do expect that today, Father. Thank you so much, Lord, for for this privilege, for this honor, Father, of gathering together, of worshiping you, Father, uh, and just enjoying your word, Lord, and learning more about you, uh, and ultimately, Father, knowing you better. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So we're going to start out today in Job uh, 38, uh, verse 12, if you want to turn there with me. And in Job 38, 12, uh, we'll read through verse 18. God is speaking to Job here, and he says this, Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. This is an incredible set of verses. Uh, really, this entire chapter, Job 38, 
probably one of my favorite chapters in the Bible personally, because God is speaking so plainly, like so humanly about his power and his control over all of creation and over all of existence, and he's comparing it to our power and our control and our knowledge and the gap that he's presenting here for, between who he is and who we are is so breathtakingly vast that it's almost impossible to comprehend. I think it is impossible to comprehend. But what's interesting is he's describing his power and his control, and he's describing it in a way that's, that's understandable to us. I mean, he describes himself as walking in the recesses of the deep. And what's really incredible is that although they show that God is infinitely unparalleled in his power and his majesty, we can know him. That's the reason these verses are written this way. They're written this way for us to understand him and know him. The power that he has, that he, the power he has over all of creation is something that's impossible to truly understand, but he's communicating it here in a humanly way so that we can look at it and know more about him and hopefully use that to want to know him more deeply. He describes daybreak as commanding the morning. And he describes his omnipresence as him being able to walk in the recesses of the deep. I don't think God probably, he probably doesn't physically come down and walk in the recesses of the deep. Maybe he does. Um, but I think he, it's being written here in a way that's understandable. It's meant to be understandable by us. While at the same time, we know that it is just a human relatable description of level of power and control that's infinitely greater than anything we can comprehend. There are many things even created by man that are, that are hard to comprehend. I assume most of you are probably like me in that you can look at your phone every day, just as an example, and it's rare that you think about all of the code uh, that's running the graphics and even keeping the cell connection uh, alive. Uh, you actively don't think, or I at least don't actively think about that as I'm sort of looking at it. It just, I hold it in my hand and it just kind of works. Um, but there's a lot of complexity happening there behind the scenes, which we're very reliant on that continuing to happen. Um, and for me personally, this sort of idea of not really thinking about the complexity happens for things that probably I should even be thinking about actively. Um, as some of you know, and I was mentioning to Mark ahead of time, uh, my day job is as a video game developer. And so I go to work every day and spend every single day thinking about how to create this video game or to sustain it because uh, it's already released, and so we're constantly pushing patches and things out to it. Uh, but even then, unless I'm specifically thinking about the code while I'm playing, I can still just forget about all that behind the scenes, even though I spend every single day working on it and, and working on different features. All of that architecture and design, all the systems running behind the scenes, I can just play it and just not even think about any of that stuff. And I think in the same way, it's very natural for us to look out at the, round, the world around us and not necessarily consider the complexities behind it that God is keeping in control at all times. And as we read these verses in Job, I think it's worth stopping and considering the fact that God isn't like us in that aspect. God is, of course, omnipotently aware that he is in control of all things at all times. He's, uh, he's aware of the fact that he created the entire universe. And I know it seems obvious to say, but it's very different from us. We can forget what it takes to keep things running. God never forgets that. He's fully aware of the fact that he and he alone upholds all of existence. As he said, he commands the very dawn to know its place. And God's explaining to Job in these verses that the universe doesn't run itself. 
God is actively working together at all times and in all things to keep it running. In fact, his will is the only thing that keeps existence held together. He says a few verses after what we read later on in in Job, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? And then he says, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Which is beautiful to think about that God is that, he's touching creation in that sort of small of a way. The creation and continual sustaining of life and matter, for that matter, and even energy, it doesn't happen on its own. It's not something that just runs on its own. Hebrews 1.3 says specifically that Christ himself upholds the universe by the word of his power, which is exactly what Job is telling us here as well. Every individual act, whether or not it's as big as the morning sun rising, um, which even that is, is massive to try to think about what, what's happening there, or as small uh, as the mountain goat giving birth, every one of those is specifically commanded by God. He not only causes it to happen, but he is playing an active role in it occurring such that if God withheld his hand from that, it would not only cease to happen, it would cease to be, it would cease to exist. To us, seem things, for me at least, things seem to just kind of go on, same as they always have. Uh, things just keep happening the way they always have for forever. But God is exerting his will every second to keep everything that we see around us held together. But what's important about all of that is that knowing that those things are true about God is not the same as knowing God. Knowing God is when we acknowledge that those things are true with our lives, with our thoughts, with our words, with our interactions. Knowing God is when we live our lives in communion with him. Not just thinking that those things are true and sort of agreeing with them, but it's when we look at the fact that everything we see around us is a result of the majesty and the power of God and we worship him for it. We talk with him about it. If I know those things and I just keep them in my mind and I don't, I don't pray to God about them, I don't think about his power and his majesty, then I, I don't know God, I just know about God. And really, that's kind of been the individual struggle of mankind throughout the centuries. We've always known there is a God. It's imprinted into our hearts that there is something more than just the material, something more that we should be seeking. And despite all the scientific advances we've made, we've never been able to erase that awareness. People have tried to erase it, certainly. There are many trying right now to erase that awareness of the fact that we know we should be seeking God. During the Enlightenment, uh, it was hoped by many that as rationalism increased, that that ancient belief in a God who maintains control and order over everything, who created the universe, it was hoped that as we learned more about the world, that that idea would be abandoned. In fact, that was what Nietzsche's famous God is dead quote was about, if you ever heard that. He was referring to the fact that we were learning so much more about the universe uh, faster than we ever have before, and he believed that we had reached a point where sort of the need for God uh, was kind of dissipating. But as time has passed since then, and that was in, I think, the late 1800s that he said that, as time has passed since then, uh, that has not proven to be the case. In fact, more people today believe in a creator God than they did when Nietzsche said that. 
despite everything more that we've learned about reality, and no matter how much society tries, we can't seem to force ourselves to eliminate that powerful inclination of our souls to look to God. Even people who don't believe will still find themselves almost uncontrollably personalizing the universe around them, which is why you'll often hear things from people like, oh, I guess the universe didn't want me to have that job. It's just something in our souls that causes us to want to look to God. And not only do we feel it in our souls, but as we talked about earlier, we see it in the world around us. Hundreds of years of incredible advancements in science and a better understanding of the universe has only furthered our awareness of the fact that existence cannot have come from literally nothing. And everything we see around us, reality, can't be the result of a bunch of incredible cosmic coincidences. All of mankind looks out at the world and marvels at its incomprehensible complexity. I was reading in an interview with an astronaut recently, uh, and in it he was talking about uh, how incredible it is that humans can survive in space, that our bodies can actually function in space. And he was talking specifically about in zero gravity or near zero gravity, that our human bodies still can operate in that kind of environment. And he was saying that through the research of our bodies in space, especially in environments with microgravity like that on the space station, where our body's reliance on strength is almost non-existent. He was saying that through research of our bodies there, scientists had discovered that the very first time an astronaut arrives in space and uses the restroom, analysis has shown that the body is immediately getting rid of a high amount of calcium and minerals. They're just being removed from the body almost immediately. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, why, why would that be the case? There's gotta be a reason for that. And the quote that the astronaut gave, who is not a religious man, but the quote that he gave on that was this. He said, regarding this calcium, this extremely high amount of calcium and minerals being removed, he said, we don't know what sensors in the body recognize that you're weightless or why we would even have those sensors. But your body, body sh starts to shed your skeleton right away. Which I guess makes sense if you think about it. You don't need to rely on a strong skeleton as much when you're in like nearly zero gravity. But the point is this, is that God has designed us biologically in such an incredibly sophisticated way that there are things about our bodies that we are just now learning after all the research we've done. And this example was something that had never been known until we had gone to space, put people in the space station and started doing research on the effects of microgravity on our bodies. God's design is so deep and so complex that it seems possible that despite all of our scientific progress, we may actually never fully understand the depth of our own complexities. And it's been assumed that as we've closed the gap on our knowledge of the universe, we might cease to have a need for God, like Nietzsche was saying. But what we've discovered instead is actually that the more we learn about how complex reality is, the more we realize how little we actually do know. This complexity is viewed differently, of course, depending on the foundational beliefs that you bring to it. As believers, we see this complexity and we marvel at God's incredible design. Right now, as we all sit here, our bodies are made up of trillions of cells. And each of those is alive, really, in its own way. And each of those cells is made up of 100 trillion atoms with electrons orbiting the nucleus. I mean, just think about that for a second. It's 
you look around, it's almost impo- it is impossible for me at least to sort of take in and comprehend that that is what is making up reality. And all of this, every atom, every cell was formed by the hands of our infinitely wise and matchless creator. But the Apostle Paul explains in Romans 1 how a different set of foundational beliefs, uh, specifically those that unbelievers have, caused them to view these incredible realities of existence. Romans 1, verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What Paul's saying here is that everyone knows there is a God, which I know saying that is controversial, especially more so today than ever before. But Paul is saying that men in their unrighteousness want to suppress the truth. And he isn't talking about having questions or having doubts or or not understanding certain things, wanting to understand things more. When that storm hit a few weeks ago and it knocked all of our power out, or some people's power out, knocked my power out, In that time, at one point we pressed the garage door, the power was out and we pressed the garage door button and the garage started opening. And in that moment, I was legitimately confused. I questioned my own understanding of electricity, uh, just of reality, because the garage door was opening and there was no power. Paul's not talking about us wanting to understand something better or wanting to get an answer to something. It was a battery built into the, obviously built into the mechanism by the way. Paul's not talking about that. Paul is talking about deliberately suppressing the truth because you don't want it to be true. I'll give you an example. Uh, If you were to ask someone who considers himself to be an atheist, uh, very modern, especially in terms of morality, someone who considers himself to be a, a, a modern atheist with modern morality, if you were to ask them or say to them, imagine it's proven that the God of Christianity exists. So say to them, imagine he's real. It's proven he's real. There's no denying that. But you still have a choice as to whether or not you will bow down and worship him. You can choose that. There's no denying he's real, but you can choose that, whether or not you bow down. Would you bow? And I think most people today, I think most people today would say no. They would not bow, especially up here. Most modern people, modern sort of thinkings of reality, they would say they don't want to worship. And the, answer, the reasons you would hear for that would probably be nothing new, that the God of the Bible, his morality is outdated. His morality is wrong. Such a God who imposes his viewpoints on reality uh, and will send people to hell for worshiping something other than him, that kind of God doesn't deserve to be worshiped. Many would say that when you look at God and, and, every, and his morality, that it's just not that, that kind of God. I don't want to worship him. I'm not going to worship that kind of God. And really, that's that idea uh, of us wanting to decide our own lives, 
uh, and us wanting to be in control of our lives is really a story throughout history of mankind's treason against God. God, who by his very nature defines morality, defines all of existence. There's no other measuring stick against which we can hold something up to to decide whether or not something is good or evil. God is it. And yet still, we all feel that tug in our hearts that we want to be in control. We want to decide. I, I, I feel what's right and wrong. I, I want to know. I want to decide for myself what's right and wrong. We all feel that in ourselves. And Paul's saying in the verses that we read that God's attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the beginning of the world in the things that have been made. He's saying a person doesn't look out at the world, at its infinite complexity, and have their soul cry out to them, coincidence, chance, meaningless. No one's soul truly cries out. We don't see the sunset on the drive home uh, and see the beams from the sun casting uh, themselves through the, the peak, through the clouds above the peak of Mount Rainier and have our soul cry out, pointless, meaningless. It just doesn't happen. But at the same time, as we look out at the world and we see that beauty around us, everyone also looks out and can agree that the world is not as it should be. No one would argue that things are not right in the world. We hear people say it all the time. As Christians, we know that this is because God's incredible creation has been corrupted. Romans 8 verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. When Paul says the bondage of corruption, he's talking about the effects of sin on the world. Everything evil and broken in this world is a result of that bondage. It's because of, to quote Romans 1 earlier, men have exchanged the glory of God for lesser things, for created things, rather than worshiping the creator. And when the only one who is truly deserving of worship is shunned and set aside in our hearts so that we can focus on ourselves and on doing things our way, there are effects on our lives and on the world around us. Sin is very real, and its effects are very real. And when left unchecked, sin will consume us. And what we see in the world is a result of that happening. It's a result of choosing sin over God. Famous atheist author and professor uh, David Foster Wallace gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College. In fact, it was one of the last speeches that Wallace ever gave before he tragically took his own life. Uh, and the speech is, is really quite heartbreaking because in it, he, recogni he recognizes some fundamental truths about sin, but he doesn't, he doesn't reach the truth. He doesn't, quite, he doesn't see the life available beyond sin. He just sees the brokenness. And I'd like to read an excerpt from this speech and then talk about it in terms of what we know as Christians. So Wallace says, In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding, reason, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. 
worship your own body and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart and you will always feel stupid on the verge of being found out and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are our default settings. And what Wallace was grasping at there, and it's, it's so sad, really, because he was so close to it, what he was reaching for is something that, as Christians, God has revealed to us. We understand that all of creation was made to worship. We know that all of us were built to worship. It's in our DNA. We can't escape it. It's really just a matter, I mean, to an extent, like he said, although he didn't see it, it's a matter of whether or not we allow our flesh to command what we worship. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Each of us has a choice to make every day, every moment, really, uh, and that choice is what will we focus our hearts towards? What will we worship? Because the passions of the flesh are waging war against our souls, and we can choose to either know God or to withdraw our hearts from him. God has designed us for worship. When we look around at the world, all the beauty we see in the world, we can feel our hearts pull to worship. And this is true on a small scale. God has designed us to point our hearts to something and devote ourselves to it. We all know this, but the something that we're designed for is him. All the beauty we see in the world is really just a reflection of the beauty of its creator. And by not embracing that knowledge of him, and letting it lead us into a deeper relationship with God, we're rebelling against our own purpose, against what we've been designed to do. And we're doing it at the expense of any real lasting joy. Like Romans 1 said, we all too easily exchange the glory of God for other things. And this battle that's taking place in our hearts, or First Peter called it a war, uh, it's the most important battle happening in our lives. It's more important than fighting to be successful at our jobs, uh, it's more important than fighting to be a great parent or a loving spouse. Uh, it's more important than fighting as a person to be altruistic and selfless. God's ultimate desire is not that we would be any of those things. He does want us to be those things, but that's not his ultimate and primary goal. God's primary goal is that we would know him. Hosea 6.3, which we read uh, at the beginning, beginning of the series, says, Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn, and he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. When the spirit and the flesh wage war inside of us and we find ourselves worshiping something other than God, that's our only solution, to press on to know the Lord. And we can know God by reading our Bibles, by praying, it's why we've been talking about those things during the series, by, by talking to him. And we can fail to know God by not doing those things. In fact, we will fail to know him if we don't do those things. Just stating, some, being able to state facts and knowing some facts about God is not the same thing as knowing God. It's a good start, honestly, uh, but it is just a start. We can look out at the world and acknowledge God's handiwork and agree intellectually to everything we see in the Bible, but if it's not real, really real in our lives, 
then it's not real in our hearts. Like Hosea 6 said, we must press on to know God. And as we look out at the world, our recognition of God's power and his character should ignite in us a hunger to know him more deeply for who he really is, the creator of all the things we see around us. So that when we look at the complexity we see around us, our response is, to God be the glory. And ultimately, the truth of the matter is that God will be glorified and his purposes will be accomplished. And this can be done apart from whether or not any one of us chooses to reject him or ignore him. God is actively working in the world and we can choose to live our lives the way that we want to or we can choose to know him and be a willing part of what he's accomplishing. And he is accomplishing his will. All of the evil that we see in the world as a result of sin will one day have an end. Everyone can look out in the world and understand that there's evil. We can see the beauty in the world and we can acknowledge that it's broken in so many ways. And at the same time, despite all of that evil that everyone looks out and sees, we also have in all of us a predisposition to understand that good will eventually triumph. Everyone has that. Everyone knows that good will eventually triumph, even non-believers. It's a feeling that all of us are inclined towards. And this innate knowledge that we all have goes beyond just self-preservation, beyond just good versus evil in our own lifetime, in our own mortal lives. There is a deep desire inside all of us for good, and for good to triumph over evil, even after we're dead. The Bible tells us, of course, that that is exactly what will happen. Good will win out. God's will is being accomplished. But the Bible also tells us that the incredible thing about this is that even right now in the midst of a broken world, broken by our own sin, God is using all of this evil and brokenness to bring forth good right now. Genesis 50 addresses this directly in a really incredible way. And in this chapter, uh, Jacob's son Joseph, uh, many of you may know the story, had been sold into slavery by his brothers many, many years prior. And after all those years, Joseph's been reunited with his brothers, but they are terrified that Joseph is going to pay them back for all the evil that they did to him. So Genesis 50 verse 16 says, So they, the brothers, sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of, your servant, of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph is referring to the fact that as a result of the horrible acts that his brothers committed against him by selling him to slave traders, as a result of that, Joseph ended up in a position to be able to help out many, many people during a time of extreme famine. The help that Joseph provided, helping all these people during a famine, is something that was not going to happen if Joseph had stayed with his brothers in Canaan, if they hadn't sold him into slavery. He said that his brothers meant something for evil, but God meant it for good. This is amazing because it means that God is not just in control of the parts of the world that are going well, of things that, uh, of acts of kindness and acts of goodness. God is also reaching into broken situations, into death, 
and wars and pandemics and manifesting his divine power in such a way as to bring good out of these things. Out of things that apart from God, doing this would have no redeeming value whatsoever. And we see everyone look around and want to find good out of something bad that's happening. Genesis 50 said that, says that God is doing that. There is nothing that God can't redeem. There is no evil that man can do that God cannot use for his children's good and ultimately for his own glory. In fact, mankind invented crucifixion. It was the idea of men to kill someone by hanging them on a tree, nailing them to it until they suffocated and died. But God used that to cleanse us from our sins. In fact, what's that old hymn that says, the very spear that pierced thy side drew forth the blood to save? God does call each of us to be holy, but when we fail, which we do every day, when we fail, we have the assurance that God's glory will continue undimmed. We cannot fail God in such a way that his will fails to be accomplished, which is a very comforting thought. Isaiah 26, 8 says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God's control over this world, over reality, is so absolute that he uses even our mistakes and our failures to accomplish his purposes. May we strive every day to not sin against him, but even so, his will cannot be thwarted, and his purposes will never fail to be accomplished. He said in Isaiah here, For I am God and there is no other. There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. Which is something incredible to think about. God is so powerful that he can declare the end, not the end of something, but the end from the beginning. And so not only does God turn something, something that was evil into something good individually, like with you and me and, and with Joseph here, but he's also doing this on a global scale. God is carrying out his omnipotent will over all things and bringing all that we see around us to a final resolution, one in which good triumphs over evil and the majesty of God is brought forth in the most glorious way possible. All of the complex systems we see around us are all working together towards an ending and beyond that ending into something new, something that takes everything that happened before it, all of the evil that men accomplished, all of the brokenness in the world, and uses that to glorify God's name in a way that would not, have been a, would not have been possible apart from God's redemption of us from our sins. So we're gonna close here in a minute, but before we do that, I want us to think about the world we see around us and to think beyond it to the world that's coming, a world untainted by our sin. Isaiah 11, verse six, describes this reality, if you wanna turn there and read it with me. Isaiah eleven six, and we'll read through verse 9, says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, 
and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The first half of these verses are describing a world without violence or animosity, a world where the weak doesn't have to be sacrificed to the strong. This is a world in which no creature has any reason to fear. There shall be no pain or destruction. But what's interesting is this doesn't just happen because God ordains that this become the case. This new system is a result of something, which is revealed at the end of the verses here. It says the new world will enter into this new state of peace and joy because of one thing. Because it says the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, all the earth will know God. And when everything does know God, then we shall have peace. Then we shall have everlasting joy. The only reason the world doesn't have peace right now is because the world does not know God. That's the only reason. Mankind still chooses sin, and as a result, the world is broken. But when the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord, then sin will be no more. And the order of events here is critical for us to see. It doesn't say that violence and pain will end, and then the earth will know the Lord. It says, they shall not hurt or destroy, for the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. What it's saying is that knowing God is what leads to peace. Knowing God is what leads to joy. And this is why we've been in this series about knowing God, because knowing him is the goal of all of creation. It is what will one day lead to everything being made right. But we are not here on this earth now so that we can live our lives for ourselves and just wait for that day. Like Hosea 6 says, we are told to press on to know the Lord. And when we stray from this path or we just outright choose not to walk it, not only are we dishonoring God, but we're also missing out on the incredible blessings of peace and joy that come from knowing him. Isaiah said that when the earth knows the Lord, there shall be peace beyond anything we can imagine right now. And God is calling each of us today to press on to know him, to have that peace, to be that peace in a world that desperately needs it. Knowing God is not like knowing something finite on this earth. We will never plumb the depths of God's vastness. We can spend a lifetime knowing him more and more and more and never reach a point where we feel like we've had enough. We know him well enough to stop. His infinite value and infinite worth, infinite beauty are incomparable, and we can experience it now. To be honest with you, I've experienced it. I want each of us to experience it every day. So I want to encourage all of us just to think about the time we spend dedicated to knowing God. We, we must know him. We must study his word and pray and press on to know him. God's glory will one day fill the earth, and he's called all of us as believers to be a part of that now, to not wait for that day to come, but to worship him now more and more until that day arrives when we will worship him fully. So I want to close us now with one last description of that day. And I want to encourage all of you to hold this description in your hearts as we worship with Nikki and Mackenzie. And this is in Revelation chapter 21. We're just going to read verse 1 through the first half of verse 5. It says, Then I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is what it looks like to truly know God. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to put in all of us, Father, a desire to know you, Lord. A desire to spend time with you, to pray, to read your word, Father. Lord, we love you. We want to know you more deeply, Father. Thank you that we can. Thank you, Father, that knowing you gives us peace and joy. We can have true peace and joy in the midst of a broken world, Father. What a blessing. Thank you, Father. Please, Lord, draw us closer to you every day. We humbly ask this of you, Father. Be with us now as we worship, Lord. We love to worship you. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen.